We're familiar with the epistles in the New Testament, most of them written by Paul. The book of Revelation is an epistle. We don't often think of it that, that way, but that's what it is, at least in part. When Paul wrote his letters, he spoke to people about what they were doing well, what he praised God for about them. He also spoke to them about things that weren't going so well for them, gave them exhortation, sometimes some rebuke, and then directions or commands about how to resolve things that weren't going well. What we're going to look at today is the first of seven churches that this epistle was written to in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. There are seven churches to which this is written, and we're just going to look at one of them, the church at Ephesus. So, why don't we read through those seven verses together? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So, let's look at verse 1 together, where it says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. Who is the recipient of these words? Well, it says the angel, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. The angel is identified, by the way, in chapter 1, verse 20. The angel is one of the stars that Jesus holds in his right hand. An angel is a messenger, so Jesus is writing to the leadership, the ones who give his message to the people at Ephesus. Jesus intends the members of the church to know the message, but he directs it to the leaders. Who's the speaker? Well, we know it's Jesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is speaking. He's holding the angels in his right hand, the angels of the churches, the messengers, and he is among these lampstands. He's among the churches. He's speaking to those with whom he has a very close working relationship. He's speaking to those with whom he has a personal relationship. If we go to verses 2 and 3 now, he says to them, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and have not grown weary. So this is a description of the church and the believers there in verses 2 and 3. He says, you're working. I know that. He goes on to say, you toil. The idea with toiling is physical tiredness because of work or some other exertion. Sometimes it's translated as a beating or you're exhausted because you have been beaten. Figuratively, it speaks of this confessing community, the people in the church at Ephesus, which has not fainted under assault. And assault comes in in verse 3 where he says, you endure, you're enduring, you're remaining under that which tires you. You're not escaping or fleeing that which tries and therefore tires you, but you are remaining under it for the sake of Christ and for the sake of of his gospel. To flee or to escape this pressure, this assault, would diminish or ruin their testimony for Christ, and they will not do it. So these are very good commendations given to them. He continues and says, you cannot bear with evil ones. You are unable to do something. And what is it that they're unable to do? You're unable to put up with certain things on a continuing basis. You are unable to put up with evil ones. Now, a couple of churches that he's going to write to in chapters 2 and 3, they are putting up with things they should not put up with. So this is a very real possibility, and it is a reality in some of these churches. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the church at Pergamum is putting up with those who are, uh, follow the teaching of Balaam or the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In chapter 2, verse 20, the church at Thyatira, they are tolerating that woman Jezebel who is seducing my servants. The believers in this church at Ephesus are unable, they can't, and they will not put up with evil, these evil ones. He goes on and says, you test these evil people. Your purpose is to find out the truth about them. Are they telling us the truth? Is their message right? Are their practices good? You test them to find out the truth about them. Now, for just a moment, I'd like us to look at these two verses, two and three, because it looks like he says the same thing to them in verse two and then repeats it in verse three. The phrases in the underlying text are the same. The, the ideas are the same. Why would he repeat this? Well, I think... And this is just Ted speaking now. But this is his way of saying, I want you to know that I really do understand that you're doing some very good things. You're following me. You're trying to do what's right in my eyes. And by the way, who are these Nicolaitans that he talks about? Very difficult to identify them precisely. Uh, but the first thing I want us to think about is where does he talk to them about not loving or, 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 or hating the work of the Nicolaitans. Well, it's in verse 6, not in verse 2 or 3. It would seem that this commendation should come along with the others and be in verse 2 or 3 or maybe 4, but it's in verse 6. They will not put up with these people, these people who 
we might describe in several different ways. Um, it could be uh, ministry for money, like Balaam did. Or the Nicolaitans, uh, at least one commentator says that what they taught was that because we are born again in Christ by grace through faith, then we really are beyond worrying about sin. Sensuality, idolatry, not a problem because grace covers it all. And that lie is wicked. It's from the wicked one. And so for them to hate and despise these Nicolaitans, or at least their teaching, is a good thing. So as we go through and see these commendations, we realize that this is a good church. It's a powerful church. Their theology is correct. Their teaching is correct. They will not put up with error. But as we go to verse 4, we see the problem that they have. You have abandoned the love you had at the first. Which, by the way, as we have sung about and spoken about already, is the love that Jesus Christ has for them. This first love. They have abandoned this. They have let it go. They had it, but they let it go. They permitted it to go away. They did this. It didn't happen to them. They did this. You have abandoned the love you had for me at first. Now, there's no question that love is a major theme throughout the scripture. So I want to very quickly run through five passages that I think uh, talk about this in a very powerful way. The first one is Mark. Uh, chapter 4, and I'm just going to look at verses 18 and 19, these two verses from the parable of the soils. We're familiar with that, right? Jesus is giving them a parable about how the word of God is received. In verses uh, 18 and 19 in Mark 4, say this, and this is about the seed sown among thorns or in the, among the weeds. And others, other seed, are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Cares, worries. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Jesus spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, that's not where you need to put your focus. I will take care of you. The birds don't sow, but they eat just fine because I'm taking care of the birds. And if I'll take care of the birds, surely I will take care of you. Cares get in the way. Deceitfulness of riches. You need more. Don't we all feel like we'd like to have just a little more? I forget who the famous American billionaire was, and someone said, do you have enough money yet? And he said, ah, I could use just a little more. Reminds me of the... Oh, I won't get into that. If you just had this, you'd be happy. The deceitfulness of riches. Desires for other things. It's almost like he says, besides the cares and besides the deceitfulness of riches, the seduction of money, everything else is out there. Other things have crowded out my word. And the result is that you become unfruitful. And unfruitfulness finds its root in a focus 
on a love for something else besides Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. If I speak, and I'll just do verses 1 and 3, not the whole chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Many messages on 1 Corinthians 13 focus on the characteristics of love, and that's good. But the way Paul starts the chapter is to talk about how important love is. After he deals with uh, spiritual gifts, where they come from, who gets them, how they're supposed to work together, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he ends that chapter 12 by saying, seek the higher gifts, those that impact others for edification more. But then he says, I will show you a more excellent way. That's how chapter 12 ends. And then chapter 13 begins as we have read. There's a better way to be motivated about using your spiritual gift than wondering or comparing with others how much your gift and its use will impact people. That's not what we're supposed to focus on. We're supposed to focus on something else. What follows in these verses are three what I call even-if statements. Even if I speak with the tongue of men and angels. That speaks of the superlative use of the gift of speaking in unknown tongues. Secondly, even if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, this verse speaks of the uh, spiritual gifts of prophecy, knowledge, and working miracles, which impact the body far more than speaking in tongues. So this is an ascending order. Verse 1, tongues, not so important. Verse 2, prophecy, mysteries, knowledge, more important. Then he goes to verse 3, and he talks about someone who gives his life. There isn't any more you can do than give your life. There wasn't any more God could do. to give his son. There wasn't anything more he could do. Even if I do all of those things and have not love, if love is not the motivation for all of those things, it's nothing. Zero. God's not impressed. Our motivation at its root, must be love for Christ. All else falls short. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. The lady, the beloved, is speaking, well, the lady, the, the female in Song of Solomon is speaking to her beloved. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. It, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, seals, and in the New, seals are a sign of protection, of ownership. 
So what she's saying is, set me as a seal on your heart. You belong to me. Seal your heart with me. An inward seal that she and he can see and know about. But she goes on and says, set me as a seal on your arm. The inward seal in the heart is invisible, but the seal on the arm is visible to everyone so that everyone can know this one belongs to me. Both inwardly and outwardly, the sealer wants it to be clear that her beloved belongs to her. Even so with Christ, who has sealed us with the Holy Spirit, he wants everyone to know that believers are his own prized possession. For love is as strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, and just as death and the grave will not, indeed cannot, release their hold on them, so this love will never release its hold. It will never run out on me or you. This grip of love is not selfish. This you-belong-to-me is not abusive. Rather, it is a powerful, all-or-nothing, even-if-I-die kind of commitment. It's the love that God demonstrated toward us when we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Not when we were good or strong or beautiful or smart in God's eyes, but when we were evil, selfish, arrogant, foolish, weak, ugly, and undesirable from God's standpoint, make me want to vomit kind of people. And you might say, oh, that's a little crude. Well, this is exactly what he says later on in chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. Because you're neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the word spit means to vomit. That's how we looked to him, and that's when he loved us enough to die for us. Love is vehement, passionate, powerful, stronger than death. This is the love God has demonstrated to us in Christ. Let's quickly look at another passage, John 14, verses 21 to 24. I'll read it quickly. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, the apostles, uh, before he went to be crucified, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us but not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. It's love for Christ Jesus that moves a true believer to keep his commandments. Because this is a reality for a true believer, the Father and the Son love that believer. More than that, the Father and the Son will come to him and make their home with him. Love for Christ Jesus will always be at the root of every true believer's life. The fifth one, very quickly, 
is from the, uh, the, the passage about the greatest commandment. Someone has come and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when this legal expert came and asked Jesus the question, what's the greatest commandment? From God's perspective, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus was very direct. Love the Lord your God. He added the second greatest commandment was like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Paul explains it this way in Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love for Christ results in love for the brethren, as well as for people who are not yet believers. So, as we look at this difficulty, the problem for the people in the church at Ephesus, one preacher has summed it up this way. He said, their theology was very good, very clear. Clear as ice and just as cold. The problem then is that the church at Ephesus had abandoned the love they had at first when their focus was on Christ. When they came to know him at first, when they were born again, their focus was on him because they saw him so clearly and they loved so much what he had done for them. Obedience out of duty is good, but falls far short of obedience out of love. He gives a command here in verse 5. Actually, gives two. The first one is, remember, from where you have fallen. We don't fall up, brothers and sisters. We fall down. We fall from a place that's better and higher to a place that is worse and lesser and lower. Remember is a theme that runs throughout the Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, Moses says to the people of Israel, when God brings you into the promised land and gives you cities you did not build and cisterns you did not dig and vineyards you did not plant, then take care lest you forget. Remember where that came from because it's easy to care more about the gifts than about the giver. Don't forget. And when Jesus and then later Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 was talking about the Lord's table. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Notice he didn't say, do this in remembrance of what I have done. That would be good. That would be enough. But he says, do it in remembrance of me. The second command is repent. Let go with both hands of what has taken Jesus' place and your focus. Let go and take him with both hands. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What's the resolution? What do they need to do about the problem? That's in verse 5 also. Do the works you did at first. 
Now, a question comes here. If Jesus knows they're working, as he said in verse 2, why does he say, do the works you did at first? Were the works different works? Or was the motivation, the reason they did the works? Was that the difference? The text seems to indicate the latter, that their motivation was not what it used to be, what it needed to be. He goes on now and gives a warning in verse 5. I will come if you don't repent, and I will remove your lampstand. A lampstand is something that gives light. So Jesus is saying, if you don't repent, then the light of the gospel, the light of the truth that you are able to provide, I'll remove that. Because you've abandoned your first love. And at the end of that, he says, unless you repent. He talks about repentance twice in this verse. He repeats the command. It speaks of his desire for this repentance to take place. He wants them back in the place where they belong, uninterrupted fellowship with him. It's the place he lived and died and rose again to purchase for them. He wants them back. He wants them back in the sense that he wants them to love him and do all they do out of that love for him. Verse 7, the exhortation he gives to them. If you have ears to hear, listen to what the church with the Spirit says to the churches. They have ears, but are their ears working? Are they serving the purpose for which God gave them ears? Now, to be sure, these are spiritual ears, not the ones on the side of your head. Ears of the soul that hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. All have such spiritual ears, but for some of them, they're not functioning properly. There's so much going on in our world, and there's so much knowledge, there's so many voices. What are you listening to? What are you focusing on? Podcasts, movies, books, on and on and on it goes. We can listen to so many things. But are these things clogging your ears so you can't hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to our church, to you, and to me? Where is my focus? Where is your focus? If you're able to receive this message, Listen and heed the message the Spirit is giving to all the churches. Jesus is speaking, but he says, listen to what the Spirit is saying, for the words of Jesus are the words of the Spirit. The words of the Spirit are the words of Jesus. And then he makes them a promise. The promise is a gift. The fulfillment of the promise is a gift. He says, I will grant the one who conquers to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Later on, at the end of the book of Revelation, 22, verse 14, that verse speaks of those who have the right or the authority to eat of the tree of life. So this is not only for the people in the church at Ephesus. This is for all believers, as 22:14 indicates, because these are people from all languages, nations, backgrounds. 
This is what he has for us. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. As we go through this passage, as we've done very quickly, is this a letter that the Spirit would write to Hampton Park Baptist Church, our church? Is this a letter that the Spirit would write to you and to me? Well, I know he could write it to me, and I know he has. Who or what do I, who or what do you, focus on more than Jesus? What am I focusing on more than Jesus? And how can I, how can you get back to the place from which we have fallen down? I believe it's a question of focus. Everybody here, most of you are born again believers in Christ. Every one of you would say, and I believe it truly, you love Jesus. However, I think it's certainly true that some or perhaps many of us are not focusing on him. The focus is on something else. You love him, but you're not focusing on him. His astounding and relentless love for us has become so familiar, if you're an older Christian, that now you just kind of take it for granted. The awe is gone. His value has diminished in our hearts. His value has diminished in our hearts. We've done that. We don't think like we used to think when we were first born again, and we don't feel like we used to feel when we were first born again. How do we get back to the place from which we have fallen? How do we do the works we, were, we are doing, but with a heart that is hot with love for Jesus Christ? How do we do that? By renewing our focus on him. And how do we do that? We remind ourselves constantly, over and over again, every day, all day, who and what he is by memorizing and meditating on passages of Scripture that reveal him to us. Yesterday, Marla was sharing something with me that she had read one of, out, of, out of one of her favorite books. And it was the fact that someone suggested that we read through the Bible, and as we go, we look for titles of God, titles of Jesus, titles for the Spirit, helper, Comforter for the Spirit. Speaking of Jesus, as we've just looked at in the Christmas season, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Shepherd, Good Shepherd, Great Shepherd, Great Physician, and on and on. If you were to read through your Bible in 2023, and some of us have never done that, start in Genesis 1-1 and go all the way through the book of Revelation. Read through the Bible this year. 
You say, well, that's an awful lot of reading to do, Ted. It's a big book. Most Bibles, now this is an average, but in your Bible, in all likelihood, if you read three pages a day, three pages, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you'll read through the whole Bible in a year. And if you were to do that this year and take a highlighter, maybe a purple one for royalty, and you highlight every description of God, every title of God or of the Son or of the Spirit, and then you write those down somehow. I don't have a journal, and I don't like to write. Figure out a way. We've got ways to do it. Technology is a blessing if you use it well. Figure out a way to keep those descriptions and those titles before you all day, every day. You can do it if you want to. We focus on his power, his righteousness, his holiness, his compassion, his courage, the person of Jesus, humility. We focus on his intense, long-suffering, relentless love for us that we do not deserve. We focus on this person, The most wonderful person imaginable. Think about someone that you admire, that you respect, that you love. Think about the best person you know. What is it about that person that makes you hold them in such high regard? Jesus is infinitely better in every one of those points than that person. He is the most wonderful person imaginable. Focus on him. So I think we need, as we begin 2023, to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Maybe more than a couple, but these two. What am I focusing on more than Jesus Christ? Your hobby? Your house? Your lawn? Your wardrobe, your job, your kids. What am I focusing on more than Jesus? That's a battle for all of us. Second, what am I going to do to refocus on Him? I'd like to end this morning by telling you about a man that I have had the privilege of training uh, who illustrates love for us. He has a consuming focus on Jesus. Mustafa, not his real name, an ethnic Somali living in a Muslim-dominated section of his country, was born again in his late teen years. There he is with his family. Sorry you can't see their faces. Led to Christ by Christian teachers who moved to his community for the purpose of leading students to Christ, he was a secret believer for about a year after he made his profession in Christ. Why was he a secret believer? Because he knew what his family would do to him if he told them. Now, this part of the testimony is just weird, crazy, and amazing, and wonderful. At the end of a year, his father came to him and said, Mustafa, you're not like you used to be. 
you're a different person. And then he asked him this question. <laughs> Have you become a Christian? Think about that. This Muslim father is asking his son, who's a better person than he used to be, have you become a Christian? And Mustafa said, yes, father, I've become a Christian. And he kicked him out of his home, made him a street person right away. No support. The best option for Mustafa was to attend a school where 99% of the students were Muslim. When Mustafa and a few believing friends were recognized as Christians because of their Bible studies and worship, the students beat them, burned their clothes, their books and bedding, and chased them from school. They had to flee. Yet the leading of Jesus in his life was always, go to your people, go back to your people. This cycle of testifying, persecution, fleeing, then returning is the story of Mustafa's life. This picture is him sitting with a group of people in Somalia, where if you're a Christian, you might not live to tell about it tomorrow. Because he loves those people, he's been there. Some of these people have been one to Christ, and they're going through some particularly difficult times, so he's traveled into Somalia to be with them, encourage them, and to share the gospel. So this cycle just goes on and on and on in his life. He continues it to this present day, helping the sick and needy for the sake of Jesus, taking them food, but most of all, sharing with them the gospel. Why does Mustafa do this? Because <laughs> he loves Jesus. Why else would he put his life in danger over and over and over again? Why else would he risk leaving his wife and three children? Every time he goes to Somalia, he may not come back. He loves Jesus, and he loves those whom Jesus loves. Mustafa's life challenges and motivates me. Perhaps it will motivate you as well. Let 2023 be a year of refocusing on the most wonderful person imaginable, Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. By your exceedingly great and precious promises, Father, you have given us the privilege of being partakers of the divine nature and yet, we so quickly are numbed to the awesome, beautiful, wonderful reality of a relationship with you. Father, help us to love your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for not letting us go when we have let go of you. Thank you for your love. Help us to refocus our love upon you. And we ask it in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.
As we sing in response to the preaching of God's word, Ted has chosen the song, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Let's stand and sing. reading God's word together, we use it now as we read together and use them as words of blessing to one another as the church prepares to scatter back into the community. Today our benediction, 2 Thessalonians 3:16. read with me in unison. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Go now and live the gospel before others.